I do want to uh, begin, before I begin, I want to answer a question that someone asked me yesterday or last week. <clears throat> and I hope that, uh, and I'm praying that, that God will, will give me just the right words. The question was this, <clears throat> why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't it have been an angel instead? Why did it have to be Christ? I think we've studied enough together that maybe we can pull this thing together. We talked about what sin is, right? What is sin? It is the transgression of the law, right? But what's the law? It's a transcript of the character of God. Now, I don't know if we... The, the answer to that question is actually found there because um, you remember that in, in the lesson that we did on the, on the law, I gave you a, a, a sheet at the very end that showed how the Scripture, all the descriptions used in the text used to describe God, the same words are used to describe God's law. Because the law is a transcript. It's a revelation of who God is. The, the law is, is a revelation of God in written form. God is eternal. His law is eternal. God is holy. His law is holy. God is righteous. His law is righteous. God is love. And Paul tells us that His law is, is love. The law of God is a revelation of God. So sin is an act that is perpetrated against God. Sin is an act that is perpetrated against God. It's not perpetrated against an angel. A, an angel has love, but an angel is not love. God is love, and His law is love. So that would mean then that to atone for that sin... Only someone equal to that law that was broken can atone for it. He's the only one that can pay the price. The only one who can absorb the loss is the one who is equal with the law. An angel is not equal with the law. I want to read to you a quote. It's found, if you want a, a reference, uh, in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Right about this, the center of the paragraph, it's page 62. Page 62, and it says this. The broken law of God demanded the life of the sinner. Right? The wages of sin is? Sin is the transgression of the? In all the universe, there was but one who could, in behalf of man, satisfy its claims. Since the divine law is as sacred as God himself, only one equal with God can make atonement for its transgression. None but Christ could redeem fallen man from the curse of the law and bring him again into harmony with heaven. Does that make sense? I hope that answers your question. I'm sure we can squeeze that awfully tight. And, uh, but, but that is, in broad strokes, the reason why an angel could not atone for the death, for the sin of man. Because sin is an act perpetrated against God. Because the law of God is a revelation of His character. I hope that makes, makes sense. 
I'd like for us to begin with a word of prayer, <clears throat> and then let's jump into our presentation here. Uh, today, we're going to go into the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, part one, the revealer of secrets. I will kneel as you bow your heads with me. O oh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the things that you are teaching us. We're, we're beginning to understand things more. Things are, are coming together. But Lord, we are reminded that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Um, you're the only one who is spiritual that can teach us what the spiritual truths of, of your word. And so we thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you send to us to be our teacher. As we gather here again, Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. It was only that blood can, that can atone for our sin. And we thank you for the risk you took to save us. Dear Lord, we, we ask now for the outpouring of your Spirit. Lord, fill our hearts and minds. Be our teacher. There are so many people in this room, each one at a different place in life, each one here for a different reason. And you have a message for each one. And so I pray that that message will be delivered to the glory and honor of your name. And no human can do that, Lord. Only you can. We pray for your angels to encompass us about that you will truly shut us into that secret place of the Most High. We want to hear you, Lord. Teach us. We can see the events all around the world that are telling us that what's happening is not sustainable, neither in the economy, neither in in, in uh, the, uh, the, the, the way we were in society, in the relations of nations, uh, in, in, in finances of the world. Everything is, is at a fevered pitch. So Lord, you have our attention. Be our teacher now. We thank you as we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we're going to do a little bit of a review. You know, we have been talking about... Um, how the sanctuary operates. We have spent a number of weeks looking at the daily activities in the sanctuary. And in the daily activities, we, uh, we saw how God is teaching Israel how He is going to deal with the sin problem. And in very simple imagery, He, he shares with us that He was going to bring a substitute to take on our death penalty for us. And we saw how uh, the sin, the sinner covered in his sin would place his hand on the lamb and symbolically transfer his sin to the lamb and that lamb representing Christ, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then that life of that lamb was taken by the sinner. The blood then was transferred into the sanctuary and God was trying to communicate to Israel through this activity that took place every day that the sin would be removed from the sinner, but the record of it would be placed in the sanctuary. And of course, by that, the record of that sin was the word pardon written in red. But then, this necessitated a cleansing of the sanctuary, of the record of sin. And then, we were introduced last week uh, to the Day of Atonement. And on that day, uh, the sanctuary was cleansed of that record of sin. It was done away with and it was placed on a goat, on a zazel, which represented Satan. And God wanted us to understand that at the end, the sins that he led God's people to commit, the, 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 the blame for that sin would be placed on the instigator of sin. 
and then it'll be done away with, and the record would be clean. And Israel came to recognize that that day represented the day of judgment. But Israel, unlike us Christians, looked forward to the day because they recognized that that was the day that the record books were cleaned and their sins were done away with. Well, at the very end of that study, we discovered that the Day of Atonement was a shadow of the actual event of the judgment that will take place. The Bible talks about it. And, <clears throat> and so we, we just touched on that. And, um, and, and, and now, uh, what we're going to discover, not today, but in our next study, is that the Bible actually gives us the starting point for the judgment, for the heavenly Day of Atonement. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Daniel because the book of Daniel gives us the backdrop to our next study. It lays the foundation for us. Uh, The setting for the book of Daniel is the city of Babylon, pagan uh, nation. Babylon conquers Israel. Israel now is in Babylon. And the reason being that they're there is because of apostasy. They had long since uh, blown off God and they were living life their way. God kept sending them prophets to warn them of what they were doing and they were ignoring the prophets and basically what they were saying to God by ignoring him or by doing things their own way and not his way was "We, we will not have you rule over us. And so God respects the choice. And uh, and as a result, the protection leaves them. uh, And King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, at the time it was General Nebuchadnezzar, his father was king, he comes with uh, his Babylonian forces and uh, lays siege to Jerusalem and takes Jerusalem and many of its inhabitants captive to Babylon. Some of those captives are... uh, Oh, uh, is Daniel. One of the captives is a young man. At the time, he's probably about 17 years old when he heads off to Babylon. And Daniel, of course, wrote the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, uh, the, the centerpiece of the book of Daniel is the heavenly sanctuary. More specifically, the judgment. Daniel actually means God is my judge. And that's the centerpiece to the book of Daniel. In chapter 2, which is what we're going to be looking at today, um, it's going to show that God knows the future. We're going to take a look at history before history was history. This is fascinating. And what we're going to discover in the study is that God, is that history is not some aimless process that is subject to the whims of man. We're going to discover that history is going somewhere. God is guiding history. We're going to see how history, human history, uh, in this earth is going to end. We're going to take a look at nations that were predicted would rise and fall before these nations really came onto the scene. And uh, some of you might ask later, well, why aren't the great great, uh, civilization of China mentioned or the Aztecs? And the reason being is because those nations never came in contact with God's covenant-keeping people. We're going to be looking at nations that did come in contact with God's covenant-keeping people. 
the book of Daniel, chapter 2, begins with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the heathen king, having a dream. And we're going to discover that God isn't just interested in his own covenant-keeping people. He is interested in all the people of the world. So, so with that introduction, I hope you have your lessons with you. Um, and we're going to take a look at question number one. <clears throat> Why did God give the Babylonian king this dream? And Daniel 2.28 tells us, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh what? Known to to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. I hope that uh, you did your homework prior to coming and read Daniel chapter 2. If not, then I hope you will do it after you leave here. And, uh, and study it. <clears throat> but uh, evidently, King Nebuchadnezzar was very concerned about his, his, his nation. What would happen after, uh, after him, after he dies? You know, he, he went through all this work to build this enormous empire, and he wanted it to last forever, and he was anxious that maybe it wouldn't. And so as he's worried about this, he goes to sleep. God gives him a dream that touches on the very subject that he was concerned about. But he had a problem. Uh, When he woke up out of the dream from his sleep, he couldn't remember his dream. How many of you have ever had a dream that really impressed you and you woke up in the morning, you thought about it, and then uh, sometime later in the day you want to share it with somebody and the details have faded from you? Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has this whopping dream And he's very concerned about it, and now he can't remember, so he decides to get his, he decides to get a little help. Number two, when the king's counselors were unable to reveal and interpret the dream, what was Nebuchadnezzar's command? So he brings in his wise men, he asked them to tell him what his dream was and what it meant, and they're unable to, and so Daniel 2.12 tells us his response to that. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to what? Destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had anger issues. He was able to conquer nations. He was unable to conquer himself. But um, Nebuchadnezzar really is an interesting character in, in, uh, in, in, in history because when he would conquer nations, what he would do is uh, he would gather the young, educated, and intelligent uh, individuals from that nation, and he would bring them to Babylon, train them in the University of Babylon, and then make them part of his cabinet. He would actually create a brain drain in the nations around him and surround himself with the most intelligent uh, individuals in the then known world. He was not only a brilliant general, he was a brilliant statesman, is what he was. And he surrounded himself with the best because he wanted his nation to last forever. But this dream bugged him. And and he knew it was something significant and he wanted to know what it was because he wanted to protect his kingdom. So he brings in the intelligentsia of his government. And these were individuals 
uh, that the scripture tells us they were sorcerers, they were Chaldeans, they were astrologers, magicians. They were very mystical. They were mystics, but they were also the very educated, the creme de la creme. And he brings in, not all of them, but he brings in the, um, the, 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 the heads of the various disciplines that represented these various disciplines. And he says to them, tell me the dream. And of course, these guys, these wise men, what they did is they had They would often concoct responses to the king's dreams. I'm sure they had some little formulas there. And they claimed that uh, they had contact with the gods. And and so uh, they would often give these uh, answers to the king. And many times they were very flattering to the king. But the king this time couldn't remember the dream to tell him. So he tells the wise men to tell him the dream and its interpretation And suddenly, this man, who is very intelligent, begins to realize these aren't wise men, they're wise guys. (laughs) He's He's beginning to realize that they're phonies. What is happening is that God is about to introduce himself to this heathen king. But before he does, he has to discredit what he has placed his confidence in. Before God makes his appearance, he's got to discredit these guys. And so, uh, the, the, the process of discrediting is well underway. Nebuchadnezzar loses his cool and wants them all dead. Well, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are actually part of this discipline, these, these wise men. Daniel and, his, and his, uh, his three friends, when they were taken in by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's forces and were brought to Babylon, they were actually of royal descent They were intelligent young men, educated, good-looking, and Nebuchadnezzar selected them to go to the University of Babylon where these young men uh, 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 distinguished themselves. God blessed their efforts, and they they rose uh, through the ranks, and so they were included in um, these, these wise men. They weren't present at the time because they weren't the heads of the discipline, but when the order went out to kill all the wise men, it impacted Daniel and his friends. Uh, the Bible tells us that Arioch, the captain of the guard, shows up at uh, Daniel's front porch and, uh, and tells Daniel that they're being round up. And then Daniel asks, hey, what's going on? And Arioch tells him, Daniel has a request. Let's take a look at it in uh, question number three. <clears throat> when Daniel learned about the death decree, what did he ask the king and what did... Uh, did he tell his friends? Well, Daniel 2.16 says, Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him what? Time and that he would, sh- and that he would what? Show the king the interpretation. That's pretty bold. Don't you think? Hey, by the way, was there, is there, up to this point, is there a story in the Bible where somebody had somebody else's dream? And yet Daniel, Daniel goes in and says, Give me time. And I, I will give you the interpretation of your dream. That is pretty bold. I submit to you that Daniel and his friends recognized that they were where they were for a reason. That they survived the assault upon Jerusalem. They were whisked off to Babylon. They were placed in the University of Babylon and then placed amongst the brain trust of the government for the king for a reason. You know, friend, I don't know where you are in life right now, but I want you to know that you're there for a reason. 
God has a plan for you. He has a plan. There are no such things as accidents in God's kingdom. You know, the CIA used to have a a motto, there's no such thing as a coincidence. You are where you are for a reason. There are souls around you that God wants to reach. I, I think about the children's story we just heard. And this dear man on the very brink of eternity. And, and here he reaches out to a dear soul who doesn't know Jesus. Do you think that had an impact on this lady? There is a reason for things. And so Daniel with confidence knew that God didn't bring him there to get bumped off. God was about to do something. I can't help but wonder what Nebuchadnezzar must have been thinking. Uh, Obviously, the wise men didn't do the job, and he still didn't have the answer. He was still desperate. So when this young man, who already, by the way, impressed the king, comes in and says, give me some time, I'll give you your answer. I I can't, you know, the record doesn't tell us what the king said. The king probably gave him a time limit. I'm giving you 24 hours. No worries. So he goes back to his buddies, Daniel 2, 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house, made the thing what? Known to Hananiah, Mishan, and Azariah, his, uh, his companions, that they would desire the mercies of God of heaven concerning this what? The secret. They had a prayer meeting. They got together and they, they stormed the gates of heaven in prayer. They knew that there was one who could reveal the secret. You know, my friend, I want you to know that God is the revealer of secrets. You know, there are times in life when injustice is perpetrated against us, sometimes as children. I want you to know that there is one who sees and and justice deferred is justice coming nevertheless. Rest assured, there is one who sees. There is a revealer of secrets. I remember one time uh, when I was an, uh, an academy chaplain, academy teacher teaching, I was assigned the task of, sending a, of taking a group of young people to a Bible camp. And uh, it was a treat, really. It, everyone wasn't, uh, this was, they had several Bible camps, but this one was just for those who were doing really well in their grades and who were not rebellious. And, uh, and so this was, a, this was a special treat. And so I had a group of about 12 or 13 kids on this particular excursion. And uh, I'm driving, and uh, we stopped someplace to eat. It was probably Taco Bell. And uh, I parked the car. We go inside. We're getting the food. I'm asking the kids to order. And I noticed two of my boys didn't come in with us. They're still in the van. And I'm thinking, why are my two boys still in the van? And uh, so I tell the kids, wait here, I'm going to go get those other two guys. And um, having been young once, I knew to approach the van where they couldn't see me. So I approached from the C pillar. And uh, when I looked around, they were, there they were with uh, an iPod. Now that was contraband in the school. They weren't supposed to have that. And I was thinking, where in the world did they pull, find that at? And... So I knew what was going to happen when I turned, came around and they saw me, that thing was going to disappear and the denials were going to, f- and I didn't want to get into all that with these guys. I love these guys. They drove me crazy sometimes, but I love these kids and I didn't want to get into that with them. So I came around the corner and sure enough, the thing had disappeared and they were looking at me with their big Bambi eyes like, oh, pastor. And um, 
<clears throat> and I said, come on, guys, we got to eat. So they came out. They were very cooperative. And um, <laughs> they ate. We finally arrived at our destination, got everybody set up, went to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I was really irritated. For pity's sake, this was a Bible camp. And they're pulling this stunt. And I was so upset, and I was just laying there, and I said, Lord, I can't, I can't, I got to go in there and get that thing from that kid. There's no telling where he put it. And I'm not going to pilfer through all his stuff. That, to me, is so rude. I don't want to do that. And here I'm trying to build relationship with these guys and try to win them for Christ. And now I got this. I can't let this thing go. What do I do? And I was just laying there, and I remembered this text, that God is the revealer of secrets. I said, Lord, you know full well where that young man stuck that thing. If you will just tell me where it is, it'll really resolve this problem. And all of a sudden in my mind, I had a flash. I saw his bed in my mind, just clear as crystal. It just startled me. And I thought, oh, so that's where he has it. Okay. So I went to sleep, rolled over, went to bed. The next morning, uh, part of the project in this thing is they they got to do some construction, burn off some energy during the day. So I, I picked them up. And I took them over to the construction site, and they all scattered. And once they were nice and busy, I got back in the van, and I went back to the dorm, to the apartment or whatever, the house we were at. And I opened the door, and I was just looking at his bed, and I thought to myself, all right, if I'm this rascal, where do I put it? And I ran my hand under the mattress, okay, it's not there, put my hand under the pillow, shazam. God is the revealer of secrets, my friends. The Lord knows what he's doing. He sees all. He does. Um, turn with me now in for our next question number four. How did Daniel reveal the dream? How did the Lord reveal the dream to Daniel? To whom did he give praise and credit? Daniel 2.19 says, Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night what? Kind of like what happened at that picture in my mind all of a sudden. Daniel goes to bed. I would imagine they they had prayed and they had a sense of peace that came over them. And they said, hey, you guys, the Lord heard us. It's time to go to bed. And in the dream, in his sleep, the Lord revealed to him exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. He got to see someone else's dream. And God gave him the interpretation as well. And so when Daniel comes out of uh, a vision uh, or of, of his sleep, what does he do? The Bible says that he prays God. Let's take a look at that. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And, and in his praise, there is so much data in this praise. It is amazing. Uh, but I'm going to pick up in verse uh, 20. And it says this, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are whose? They're his. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Who allowed Trump to be president? That's what my Bible just told me. Evidently, he plays a critical role in earth's final moments. We got to let God be God. He gives wisdom to those who are wise and knowledge to those who, under, who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and secret things. This is the reason why we pray before we study the Bible. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what, you, what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's dream. God revealed it to Daniel. Exactly. You know, by the way, that reminds us, we do not thank and praise God enough. How often before, at least in my, when I go drive, before I drive, I bow my head and I ask God to protect me. Hey, when we get on the other end, we got to thank Him for getting us there. We got to remember to thank God. He is the, the giver of everything good in our lives. Let's take a look at Daniel 2, 23 and 28. He says, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers. There is a God in heaven who revealeth what? Six secrets. And what God revealed to Daniel was history that had not taken place yet. History that was about to take place. He, he revealed to him the rise and falls of nation. Take a look at the note right, before, right below number four, and I'll read it aloud as you follow along with me. The rise and fall of empires may appear as if happening by the will of men. But Daniel's prayer of praise clearly reveals the truth of divine intervention. Nothing happens that God is not already aware of. Sometimes we may not understand what is happening in our world today or why, but it is comforting to know that God is still sovereign, that he is watching and guiding in the affairs of men and nations. Only Daniel could reveal the dream to the king because he was the faithful servant of one who knows the future. Daniel rightfully gives full credit to the one who revealed the dream to him. I find it interesting that when Arioch then brings Daniel into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, he, he comes in and says, I have found one who can interpret the dream. He was trying to get his, his in there, you know, he was trying to get credit. But, uh, but when Daniel then begins to speak, he doesn't talk that way. Let's again open to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And I want you to listen carefully. You know, there are, to what Daniel says here, <clears throat> it's interesting, you know, there are various Bible characters that are, that are remembered for something. What is Samson remembered for? His strength. You know, and, you know I want to just share something right here. I think it's kind of funny. You know, he didn't always have that strength with him. You, you remember the story. It would come upon him. And every time we see pictures of Samson, he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, don't you expect a guy like that to be strong? I mean, you wouldn't really think of that as being some miracle. But the, but the strength that came upon Samson was he didn't have it all the time. It would come upon him. I venture to guess one day when we meet him, he's going to be a skinny guy. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be silly. Because only then will you know that it came from God. Are you with me? I, I really think, okay, when you think of Solomon, what do you think of? Wisdom, right? And he prayed for that. God gave it to him. And, uh, you know, we think of David. David was a man of war. He was a successful warrior. But what do we think of when we think of Daniel? It's humility. He was a very humble man. Take a look at verse 26 as he approaches the king. Here's a, here's a big opportunity for him to, uh, to score brownie points with the, with the king. But look what he says, Daniel 2, verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. By the way, that was his Babylonian name that King Nebuchadnezzar gave him. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret 
which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your, upon your bed were these. As, you, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I, am, I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Isn't that awesome? Daniel was known for his humility. Daniel leaned fully on God and didn't have any trouble giving God all the credit. I want to ask you a question. Has God given you ability? Perhaps you can sing. Perhaps uh, you're a master craftsman. Uh, Whatever it may be, please recognize where the gift came from. And when people come to pat you on the back, redirect the pat to the God in heaven who gave you that ability so that God may be praised. And that is the example given to us by Daniel, one of humility. Take a look at number five. Question number five. What did Daniel say the king saw in his dream? Daniel 2.31 says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great what? A great image. And... um, What's interesting is, is that, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar being a, a, he, a pagan, he worshiped images. So, uh, image, so the moment this image comes up in his dream, it has this man's attention, all right? So what do we learn about this uh, image? We learned that it's made up of various metals. Um, the first was the head was made of what? Of gold. The breast and arms were of? Uh, the belly and thighs were of, the legs were of, and the feet uh, of iron and... So this is what he says. This is what he sees, uh, or Daniel is telling him. Then what happens? Take a look at number seven. What did the stone cut out without hands do uh, to the image? Suddenly a stone without hands uh, shows up on the scene. Daniel 2.34 says uh, that the stone which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them into pieces. So Daniel is telling the king his own dream. And as Daniel is telling the dream, it's coming back to the king. Don't you know that King Nebuchadnezzar sat on the edge of his throne completely spellbound? Don't you know that Daniel has gained instant credibility The mere fact that he was able to tell the dream of another man in incredible detail is the evidence that he is tapped into a power source. So now, as he's getting ready to give the interpretation, the king has already bought in to the fact that this man is plugged in. What he has to say next is the real deal. I I find it amazing what happens next. Um... Open your Bibles once again to Daniel, chapter 2. So Daniel shares all this, and look at what he says. I don't know if, you know, I'm I'm sure many of us have read the story, but I, I wonder if you catch on to this right here in verse 36. It says this, uh, Daniel then, when he's done, he says, this is the dream. Now, what's the next word? We 
will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. Who's we? He and God. Isn't that awesome? Now we. He, Daniel, by faith, saw his God in the room with him. Is that not cool? Daniel didn't walk into the throne room that day by himself. He saw the Lord with him. Now we are going to give you the interpretation, he says. Take a look also in verse uh, 45. I like what he says here as well. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is what? And its interpretation is what? It is sure. He said, you can take it to the bank, king. The God of heaven is communicating to you what is about to happen. Well, let's, uh, now Daniel goes in the process of unpacking this dream for the king. Let's see what he unpacks. Number eight, what does the head of gold represent? Daniel 2, uh, 38 says, what's the first word? Thou art the head of gold. What we're doing here is we're allowing the Bible to interpret itself. I mean, we can sit here and have fanciful ideas of what the gold meant. But the Bible tells us. And so the only way to understand Bible prophecy is to allow the Bible to interpret itself. And the Bible will decode itself. So right off the bat, he says, thou art the head of gold. And so the king was regarded as the head of state. And that is the reason why Nebuchadnezzar himself represents the nation of Babylon. So the head of gold represents his kingdom. Uh, And what I'm about to share with you, you can discover in any encyclopedia. You can look for it on the internet. The the empire of Babylon ruled the known world from about 612 B.C. to 539 B.C. You can look it up. But the, the, the amazing thing is, is that Daniel knew it ahead of time. God showed it to him. Babylon actually was an amazing city. It was beautiful. It it actually contained uh, two of the wonders of the world, uh, the seven wonders of the world. Uh, For one thing, the city was really enormous, Um, and, and, and for its day, it was huge. It was actually 15 miles across, 15 miles wide. That is huge. That is huge. Inside uh, contained the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar had built for one of his wives. And uh, the other wonder of the world was its wall. I mean, 50 miles, 50 miles. You can imagine how much wall. That wall at its base was 65 feet wide, 55 feet high, uh, wide at the top. It was about 80 feet high, and it encompassed the entire city. Uh, the city was made, uh, made out of bricks. They were fired bricks. And the city was color-coded. Uh, the walls, the buildings uh, were, were made of yellow. The entranceway, there's the Ishtar Gate, was made of blue. So just follow the blue to get in. Um, the government buildings were made of pink brick. They were, they were pink buildings. The government buildings were pink. And the religious centers were white. It was color-coded. R- running right down the center of, uh, of Babylon, you can see it up here in this corner, was the river Euphrates. They ran it right through the city. They said you could never take the city in a siege. 
Uh, there, was no, there was no army that was going to scale those walls. There, was no, there were no cannons to knock down those walls. And there were enough granary, uh, uh, archaeologists tell us, in the city to, to feed the city in a siege for over 20 years. They had all the food and the water they needed. There was no army that was going to outlast that city. It just did not exist. Um, but we're going to find out that even the best laid plans of men go awry. Number nine. Would the Babylonian kingdom last forever? Daniel 2.39 says, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And of course, that next kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire represented by the silver, the arms of silver in the statue image. The Medo-Persian Empire ruled uh, the then known world from 539 BC to 331 BC. Again, you can go to your encyclopedia. It's there. Uh, One of the things that the Persian Empire was known for was its currency. It was all of Silver. That's actually a sample. Their currency uh, was of silver. Um, king Cyrus was the king that took Babylon, the city that could never be taken. Cyrus and his forces were approaching Babylon, and the then king, Nebonidas, uh, took out his troops to meet Cyrus and his forces. In that battle, Nebonidas' troops were routed and nobody knew what happened to the king. He disappeared. And so inside Babylon, his son, uh, Belshazzar, uh, heard that his dad was defeated and nobody knew where he was. So that now made him the new king. And so he was kind of excited about that. And he decided to throw a big party. Now, outside of the walls of Babylon were the Medo-Persian forces. But uh, you can just about see the, the Babylonians in the city just kind of making fun of the, Syria, of, of the Medo-Persians on the outside saying, you guys are never coming in here. They threw a big party while the forces were out there because they were sure that they, nothing was going to happen. By the way, that's an interesting read. That night, Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar decides to bring out uh, the, the instruments that are used for the worship of God into his big party and decides to mock the God of heaven. And uh, the story tells us that all of a sudden a bloodless hand appears and begins writing on the wall, and the message basically was the party's over. That's uh, Things had come to a, a, a halt for these guys. Daniel was brought in to interpret the dream and, uh, and, and informed him that his kingdom had come to an end. Meanwhile, while all that's going on on the outside, uh, Cyrus came up with an idea. His troops had come across a, an old uh, lake bed, big old lake bed. And so what they decided to do is beyond in the mountains is to redirect the flow of the Euphrates into the lake bed. And in, meanwhile, inside Babylon, nobody was paying attention to the fact that the water levels were dropping. And, uh, and of course, the guards were drunk. There were actually gates that were supposed to come down into the water to protect the waterway. But they were so uh, uh, intoxicated, nobody dropped the, the, the bars. And as the water level dropped, an opening was seen and Cyrus's troops came in and the city fell in a day. 
The interesting thing is, is that the Bible prophesied that that would happen. Open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 45. Daniel, uh, Isaiah prophesied that the city would fall 100 years before the event took place. 100 years. Now, if that isn't strange enough, amazing enough, God also told Isaiah the name of the general who was going to be the one to take it 100 years before he was born. So take a look, Isaiah chapter 45, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. It says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed. To who? He names the man a hundred years before he's born. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name. I am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and for Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. You know, my friend, you are not a nobody to God. Even before you were born, God saw you sitting in this place today. You know, the devil may be discouraging you. Things may be going bad in your life, but God cares about you. He, he knows you're here. He brought you here today. He wanted you to know that. He loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Hang in there. He has a plan for your life. So, after Cyrus, another nation would come. Number 10, what metal would represent the kingdom that followed Medo-Persia? Daniel 2.39 says, then another kingdom of what? Of brass, uh, shall bear rule over the earth. And so not even the Medo-Persian Empire would last forever. And the next kingdom, if you were to look at your encyclopedia, uh, is the kingdom of Greece, is the next kingdom on the scene. And the great king of Greece at this time was Alexander the Great. And this is very interesting, but uh, uh, Alexander met the Persian forces in, thir- in 331 B.C. In a, in, in a place called Arbella. And uh, the Medo-Persians have a force of about 128,000 men, and Alexander came in with a force of about 33,000 and routed them. Alexander came with using different military uh, tactics. He would charge first with his cavalry, to divide the forces. And you know the old adage, divide and conquer. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Alexander's forces never met with defeat. They never met with defeat. Uh, They conquered, Alexander's forces conquered the then known world in just a few years. He was 32 years old when there was no one left to conquer. 32. 32. 
And of course, uh, in a drunken state, uh, he uh, ended up getting blood poisoning and he dies as a young man, once again, able to conquer nations, unable to conquer himself. And uh, then the nation is divided amongst his four uh, generals. Um, it was a kingdom of brass. The, the, the Greek warriors were known as the bronze warriors because of all the bronze that they wore. Um, it is a protective covering. So the medals rightly represent the nations. By the way, are you noticing that as, the, as you go down the list, the medals become less valuable, but they become harder? You notice the, pa- the, the, the pattern? And uh, what's happening here is historically, the nations, as, as we go through history, are becoming more and more immoral. Yet militarily, they're becoming more powerful. Very interesting combination that is taking place. So what is happening here is that history proves that the Bible is not an ordinary book. The Bible is inspired by God. The, the book of Daniel, chapter 2, has won more skeptics to the Bible than any other chapter in Scripture because of the history. Now, as I say that, I need to add this. You've got to know history to know that this, there's no way Daniel could have predicted thousands of years of history before it happened. Now, there are people that say, oh, Daniel wrote it after the fact. After it all happened, Daniel wrote it. That's actually debunked on two grounds. Number one, the Dead Sea Scrolls predate Christ's life, and this wasn't done yet. And, uh, and, and, and the books are written there. Okay, well, Daniel wrote there. But there's another reason why uh, that's not even possible for Daniel to have written it after the fact. Stay with me now. <clears throat> when, when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, that was a big fist-pumping event because Babylon was the crown jewel of the known world. And so this was like a big event, huge. It was bigger than taking any city. The Babylonians were very proud people and they didn't like the idea of having been conquered and they gave fits to the Persians. They were constantly rebelling. And so what turned into fist pumping became uh, an annoyance. And finally, the Medo-Persian king had had enough and they went to Babylon and they obliterated it. They raised it. Now, I want, to open your Bi- I want you to open your Bible to the book of Isaiah because Isaiah prophesied that this would happen. Isaiah, and we're going to take a look at chapter 13. So again, long before this event took place, it was prophesied. Daniel, cha- I mean, Isaiah chapter 13. <clears throat> and we're going to look at verse, wait, because you'll read ahead of me if I do that. Are you there? If you're there, say Amen. Okay, Isaiah 13, and I'm going to read verse, pick up verse 19, I read 19 and 20. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, is Sodom and Gomorrah standing today? Once they were destroyed, that was it. So he's comparing now. What's coming on Babylon is the same thing that happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20, it will never be what? Inhabited, nor will it be settled for generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherd make their sheepfold there. Babylon was obliterated and disappeared from the annals of history. So thorough was its disappearance 
that by the 1800s, Bible scholars were saying that Babylon never existed. There was no, there was no data to support the idea that Nebuchadnezzar was even a real person. So they were saying that, um, this is, these are Christians by the, by the 1800s were saying that, excuse me, the 1700s, that, um, that Babylon really didn't exist and that the whole story is fictitious and that God doesn't know the future. Once we get into the 1800s, the 19th century, the discipline of archaeology really kicks into high gear. And one of the first things they're after is Babylon, and they find it. And as they unpack Babylon, what they discover is all those bricks that we saw, Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit of an egotist. Every brick had his name stamped on it. It was everywhere. His name was all over the place. The only book of Ant- the only book from the, uh, uh, document from antiquity that we had that even mentioned his name for centuries was the Bible. He had disappeared from history. Not only that, but as they got into the government buildings and began to pull out the documents, they found the name Melzar and Ashpenaz. Those are names in the book of Daniel that had disappeared from history. Not only that, but they had no idea of how Nebuchadnezzar had structured his government. But in the book of Daniel, it is revealed. And when they went into Babylon, it was all supported. The only record we had of this, this kingdom was Scripture. So why am I sharing this with you? It would have been impossible for Daniel to have made this up unless he wrote the book of Daniel in the 1800s because the data had disappeared from the face of history. The only way that the book of Daniel could be written with such incredible accuracy in all the names is if he was actually a character in that era. He had to have been in the palace and known these people. My friends, your Bible can be trusted. We serve a God that doesn't guess at the future. He knows the future. He knows the future. So let's take a look uh, at the next one now is the Iron Monarchy of Rome. What metal represents the fourth kingdom? Daniel 2, 4, 40 rather says the fourth kingdom shall be the, a strong as what? Iron. And how many of you have heard the expression the Iron Monarchy of Rome? You know why? Um, the, the, the Romans, what they brought uh, onto the scene of warfare was new technology. Up to this point, everybody was using bronze. It was easier to work with and uh, plentiful, but iron wasn't. The Romans, however, figured out how to get it in surplus. So their swords were made out of iron, and when they met opposing forces with brass, those guys can hack right through their swords. Not only that, but their armor also had it. They had incredible uh, protection. Interesting, too, by the way, their shields. You know, the shields of opposing uh, armies were made out of brass. By the way, how heavy do you think those things were? All right? Not only that, you couldn't have it really big because they're so heavy, so they were small. The Romans had big shields to protect themselves with. Their shields were made out of plywood because it could absorb the blow. The edges, although this picture here doesn't show it very well, but the edges were, were strips, was a strip of metal to protect a hack 
against a hack. But it was made out of plywood and it can observe the blow and they can protect themselves more of themselves. They used interesting tactics too. When they went up against an army and the army pulled some new stunt they have never seen before that was, that was successful against them, they would kind of rehuddle. Hey, what did those guys just do to us? And they would analyze what they were doing and then they themselves would copy it and go back out into combat and use the very tactic. They, uh, they were military geniuses uh, and they were very destructive. You couldn't stand up against them because of their military might and superiority in technology. Rome comes onto the scene in 168 BC and lasts all the way to 476 AD. It was Rome that was in power when Jesus comes onto the scene when he is born in Bethlehem. And here we are watching God gives to Daniel history before it is history. Now let's go to 12. What would happen after the fall of the Roman Empire? Daniel 2, 41 and 42 tells us um, the kingdom shall be what? Divided as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly what? Broken or weak. And so the very feet of the statue, we see this combination. Now let's look at the note right below 12. When the Roman Empire began to crumble in AD 476, it was not overtaken by another world power. Instead, barbarian tribes conquered the Roman Empire and divided it just as Daniel prophesied. Ten of these tribes evolved into modern Europe. They were the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Franks, Vandals, Alamanni, Suve, Anglo-Saxon, the Hurils, or Hurioli, Lombards, and Burgundians. And uh, so here we see how Europe, all of this territory was once uh, conquered by um, Rome. But uh, Rome wasn't conquered by another nation. Instead, uh, tri uh, barbarian tribes just dissected it over a period of time until it ceased to exist. Now, a lot of those barbaric tribes we know today, the Alamanni or the Huns, and then the, uh, the Suve, Portugal, Lombards, Italy, Burgundian, Switzerland, Anglo-Saxon, of course, we know that one, that's Britain. There are three other nations that have disappeared from history. We're going to find out later why. One is called the Hurioli, the other the Ostrogoths, and the last one the Vandals. By the way, uh, what word do we get from these people? Vandalism. Vandalism. These are the guys, these guys were very, very unnecessarily destructive and that is why we, that's where we get the word vandalism. Um, one thing that's interesting, if you really want to read deeply into this, there is a book written by a man named Edward Gibbons. The book is called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It is considered one of the 50 greatest works of Western civilization. And he documents uh, the fall of Rome and this process. Uh, you know, by the way, from my understanding, he was not a Christian man. And he had no idea that his works were actually validating Daniel chapter 2. Lined it right up. It's, it's just amazing. Number 13. Uh, what would, uh, would these ten kingdoms ever succeed in uniting? Daniel 2.43 says, They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So these nations in Europe over the centuries tried to unite Europe by intermarrying uh, through alliances and treaties. Some of you will remember in your history class that during World War I, most of the monarchy, most of the government leadership in Europe were related uh, at the time of the outbreak of the war. And there was an attempt to unify them 
It didn't work just as the Bible prophesied. Of course, there were others that came along the scene in history who tried to unite Europe by force. One was Charlemagne. Uh, the one who almost pulled it off but wasn't going to was Napoleon. Napoleon was going, going up against Bible prophecy. Kaiser Wilhelm, World War I. By the way, what does Kaiser mean in English? Caesar. He was trying to unite Europe. He didn't succeed. And then the last big attempt, well, I was going to say the last, second to the last big attempt was Mussolini and Hitler. When I was, um, all those men were running up against uh, Bible prophecies. Really interesting. During World War I, there was a man. How many of you have ever seen the blue books, Arthur Maxwell blue books? Arthur Maxwell gave his life to Christ two years before the outbreak of World War I. When World War I broke out and it appeared that uh, the German forces were going to combine Europe, he had just given his life, he had studied the book of Daniel and he was convinced that Kaiser Wilhelm was going to fail. And he did. During World War II, uh, Arthur Maxwell was the editor of Signs of the Times. And in 1940, when the Nazi machine was, was just crushing everything in his past in Europe, and everybody was fearful that Germany was going to take over Europe, uh, he was approached and was told that we needed to reinterpret Daniel 2. And he said, not a chance. And he wrote an editorial. And on the very front cover was the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he told his readers, this is 1940. He said, hold on to this subscription. Hitler is going to be defeated. Hold on to this subscription. And Hitler was defeated. You know, when I was living in, uh, I was a, a, an academy chaplain in Kansas. Uh, the year was 2005. And uh, there was a parent, we were talking, and he came to me and he says, hey, you know, we're going to have to reinterpret Daniel chapter 2. And I said, why is that? He says, because of the EU. Europe is about to be unified. And I said, brother, I think you need to reinterpret the EU. <laughs> and I, I was really, I, I, sometimes, sometimes, Pastor Don, I need prayer. I scolded him. I said, you know better. I said, you don't go up against Bible prophecy and win. You know better. I said, you should remember my words carefully, brother. One day I'm going to bump into you somewhere. We're going to have this conversation again, and it's going to end a little differently. And uh, what do you think? Yeah, you, you don't go up and win if you go up against Bible prophecy. Number 14, this is very amazing. Who will set up the final kingdom? Daniel 2.44 says, and in the days of these kings shall what? The God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be what? Destroyed. Now, I want you to think for a moment. When Daniel interpreted the dream, he was living in the era of the head of gold. He was looking down the corridor of time to that time when all that will be will the ten toes. And then the coming of Christ is what is prophesied by that rock. He was looking down and he realized, man, there, there is a long ways away before the coming of Jesus. But my friend, today you and I are on the other end of the spectrum. We're living, we're living in the final moments of earth's history. We're in the toenails. We're looking back at Daniel thousands of years. The next event for the human family is the coming of Christ. Number 15. <clears throat> 
What does the stone do to the other world kingdoms? Daniel 2, 34 and 35 says, A stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and what? Break them in pieces, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's take a look at the note right below that. The stone that was cut without human hands represents God's kingdom. It will not be a conglomeration of earthly kingdoms, but a total replacement. The scriptures declare that when Jesus Christ returns to earth, he will completely consume all the kingdoms of earth and establish an everlasting kingdom. What exciting news. What do you say? Jesus Christ is coming again. All history is moving towards this climactic conclusion. When the Son of God shall return in majesty to bring in the kingdom of everlasting righteousness. My friends, I hope that the gravity of what we just studied is sinking in. We are living in the final remnants of time. The Lord is about to return. History is, finds its climax at the second coming. That's what the prophecy just told us. And we're going to study what the Bible says about the second coming. We're going to study it. Let's continue. Next paragraph. King Nebuchadnezzar may have thought that he had defeated the true God when he besieged Jerusalem and plundered the temple. But he was shown very quickly that God is ruler over all. Human events are under his control and ultimately he will win the conflict. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the ten divisions of Roman Empire may have sought to usurp divine authority and destroy the people of God. But all earthly kingdoms will eventually be crushed at the coming of Christ. Thank God he will win the great controversy between good and evil. Amen. Let's take a look at number 16. Final question. After hearing Daniel's clear interpretation of the dream, what did Nebuchadnezzar say about the Lord? Daniel 2.47. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou could reveal this secret. You know, aren't we glad that there was someone in the court that day that was faithful to the God of heaven. Aren't we thankful that there was one who wasn't ashamed, he didn't hide his colors. He ran his colors up the pole and, and made it clear to everyone who it was he served. And in so doing, it convinced a heathen king. And by the way, he eventually gives his life to God. You know, God has placed you somewhere, friend, where souls will be won to the kingdom solely based on your faithfulness. If you're willing not to hide your bushel under a basket, if you're willing to run the flag of Jesus Christ up the pole of your life, that all may know who you serve, it gives God an opportunity to work on hearts and to change them. Now, what we have done, and by the way, never forget that God always honors those who honor him. Always. So chapter 2 of Daniel has laid a foundation for us. In our next presentation, we are going to study the beginning point of the judgment, which is the final work of Christ right before the second coming. You don't want to miss our next presentation. So let's end this now uh, on our last question. Recognizing that the God of heaven knows the future and is guiding events in the lives of men, and nations today, are you willing to put your trust in him and allow him full control of your life? All right, I didn't see anybody's hand. Let me ask it again. My friend, in life, you're going to have to trust somebody. There's no way out of it. 
You're either going to trust yourself, you're going to trust your preacher, you're going to trust the president, or you're going to trust God, but you are going to trust someone. And if you and I make the choice of trusting God and doing things His way and allowing Him to lead our lives, we're going to end up blessed and one day on the heavenly shore. How many here are willing to allow God to lead them? Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.